0: Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly interview series all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, the editor of Gentleman's Journal, and I'm joined this morning by Marcia Kilgore, the serial entrepreneur and founder of Beauty Pie. Most of us would be content in our lifetimes to have just one big hit and to milk it for all it's worth, but Marcia has had four resounding successes with four separate businesses – First came Bliss, a range of New York beauty spas, which she sold to LVMH for a reported $30 million. Then Soap & Glory, the toiletries brand that Boots bought back in 2014 and has hundreds of millions in annual revenues. Fitflop, of course, the ingenious ergonomic footwear brand. And now Beauty Pie, a subscription cosmetic service which is about to turn the beauty industry on its head. In a fascinating and highly enjoyable episode, Marcia and I discuss the unique atmosphere of New York in the late 1980s, why bullshit is the enemy of success, and how the opposite of a good idea is almost always a great idea. Enjoy! But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about The Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels. Not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you, Now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership, meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right on with the podcast. So, thanks for for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. It's lovely to have you here.
1: Thanks. I mean, I'm. I'm. When my assistant said, "Will you record the Gentleman's Journal podcast?" I thought, "Well, do they want to hear about cosmetics and shoes?" But you know, those being sort of the purviews of women, and probably ten percent of men. Yeah, I thought. Well, I hope I've got something that is interesting enough to hold the audience in their seats.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well. I'm interested personally there's a vested interest because i'm thirty one now and I've never looked more at my face in increasing <laughs> horror so there's a, the, it, it, where I used to just wash it with cold water they're slowly creeping into an american psycho level routine of um tinctures and are and you moisturizers. really well, no wait. i mean i say this i i i use one you have
1: one thing yeah <laughs> <laughs> But and you feel um, like it's American Psycho level.
0: I feel like it is, and I have no idea if it's making a difference, but my, but I feel better after I've put it on, and it, that's the main thing, I suppose, isn't it?
1: Yeah, of course, but, I mean, that that sort of... Act of self-care, right? Yeah. L'Oreal L'Oreal had it so right, but they were actually very genius with their advertising slogan, which is you're worth it. Yeah. Because not only does that, you know, convince you that you should be using things on yourself, but it convinces you, you should be paying a lot for them. So whoever came up with that one, you know, they get the gold star.
0: They really do. Do, do L'Oreal still use that that one?
1: I think they do. They use because you're worth it. I mean, it's You'd absolutely, it. yeah, it's absolutely brilliant, isn't it?
0: What's the Beauty Pie slogan?
1: Get a bigger piece of it.
0: Nice. Okay. Mm. Can you break that one down for us as well?
1: Well, absolutely. Of course, you know, with Beauty Pie, we buy direct from all of the best labs and suppliers in the world. So where we buy our lipstick and let's just say, you know, the formula of our lipstick will be... Mm incredibly similar to the formula of any other luxury brand lipstick and and the packaging is similar although we're very echo conscious Uh, so we always try to make those decisions uh, properly for the for the earth and we just thought uh, you know because of the advent of the internet and how easy it is to get a message across and show your product to customers that the old beauty industry and how it works was really archaic and outdated Mm -hmm. and there's so many layers in it that add so much cost that just don't do anything for you so you pay 90 percent of the price of your product goes to advertising or retailer margins or you know rihanna you know whoever (laughs) whoever is uh fronting it at the moment but that doesn't make your face look any better No. And I thought, you know, this is it's ridiculous, actually, to be paying so much for things that leave the factory at 10% or sometimes even 5% of the cost of what the retail is. So I guess an industry really ripe for disruption by somebody who actually knows how the industry works, and then knows where to find all the best stuff, which is what I spent the last 30 years doing. Of course. And uh, after I sold my last business I did want to go back into you know beauty I I also I have a footwear business but beauty is my main thing and it's so much fun you know for for especially you know for women who love color and textures and packing that stuff up so it all looks like you know a little jewel
0: yeah
1: (laughs) and I knew all the best labs I knew all the best chemists and I didn't want to go back into that rat race of, okay, now I have to go and sell my brand to a buyer and the buyer probably it's her second year in buying and they don't know a good brand from a bad brand. And then they take three out of the 20 products and they put them on the bottom shelf. And mm. you, you know, you have to give hundreds of thousands of free samples. And I mean, it is really, it's backwards. backwards. There's no one at no point in this process. Does somebody go, Oh, what does the customer really need?
0: Right. <laughs> And
1: so (laughs) what would the customer love, right? Or what else can you put in this cream that would make it great for the customer? What you do is you go in and go, well, everybody else is selling their cream for X. So we've got to be X minus two pounds. And now we got to work backwards. Make sure 70% of that is available for the retailer. And then you work backwards and backwards and backwards. Make sure you can pay all your stuff And what you have left. is like nothing in a tube. Yeah. (laughs) And then you're supposed to go out there and tell everybody how great it is which is so disingenuous, it really bothered me. So so I just thought, oh, forget it. The opposite of a great idea is usually also a great idea. I read that somewhere, right? That's good. Yeah, yeah. It really helps you think in an open-minded way if you're kind of stuck and you think, okay, everybody's doing this. What is the total opposite of that? So everybody is selling value-engineered cosmetics for Mm. 20 times the price. That they actually cost to make. Now, what's the opposite of that? Non-value engineered because you put everything you possibly can into it to make it great and like sell it for pretty close to what it costs to manufacture and then make your money doing a membership. And that was kind of the idea. It was like, oh, this is going to be really fun because now we get to go to all our favorite labs, pick their best stuff and get the Mm. customer a bigger piece of it and so this like get a bigger piece of the pie right yeah and it's the whole empowering idea of don't get sucked in get value be smart get more for your money
0: Mm.
1: you know shop with maybe a little reckless abandon and really enjoy it because it's guilt-free and make that right decision so it's like that clear-headed kind of decision making now it's complicated. This may not be the question you wanted to ask me, but (laughs) I'll just go off. It's super complicated because of course, um, you know, for many, many decades, right, women have been um, conditioned and and maybe brainwashed a little bit to believe that if it's like with a fish tank or you've got the marble thing and that you've got a chandelier or some uh, Hollywood actress is fronting it, that Mm. then it's somehow better for you, and you are then worth more. And beauty is all about desire and pleasure and not necessarily about value. So you still have to make sure that everyone realizes that this is a luxury product, even though the price is shockingly low. And so it took a little while for people to believe it was true.
0: It's a fine line to walk.
1: It is a labyrinth.
0: Okay. Of, yeah,
1: it's a labyrinth, <laughs> I guess, of behavioral economics to just convince yeah. people, hey, wait, you can get a much better deal. If they just don't believe it. But now they believe it. So, it's coming, so. it's coming along. It's coming okay. along.
0: Yeah. I love that idea of um, the opposite of a great idea being a great idea. I wonder if you've always been slightly against the grain, if you've zagged with another zig, to borrow that phrase. What were you like growing up? Were you particularly... Um, punchy and um, challenging the status quo?
1: Um, you know, I would not necessarily fall into line, I'd say. I never really had a job working for anyone else, except yeah. once when I was about 17, I worked in a gym. Wow. And I, I remember at that point, it was like a bodybuilding gym, right, in Canada. So I grew up in Canada and um, obviously needed the part-time job in high school to make a bit of cash. And I remember thinking, oh, I mean, the, it drove me crazy the way the gym was run. And I remember just thinking, Oh my God, like if I ran this gym, I would do it this. Way. I would never do this. I would do that. I would do it. And you know, I'm a, like a 17 year old high school student, but I knew that it would be difficult for me to work for other people because I really definitely had had a vision of how I thought things would be done properly Yeah, for the customer. And if, if I didn't agree with somebody else's, it was really something that would kind of eat me up inside. So certainly I think I'm a, a self-employed type from the get-go. Okay.
0: Often when people say that, certainly at a slightly younger age, I often wonder whether uh, that's actually true that they, they couldn't work for anyone else or they just rather like the idea of being their of, own boss for, sure. for laziness reasons. In yours, I'm sure it's the right one.
1: It worked out. It yeah, worked out. It, it definitely yeah.
0: worked out. Yeah. So you you grew up in, in Canada. I'm going to try and pronounce your hometown. Saskatoon in Saskatchewan. Uh, that was
1: pretty close, Joe. Nah,
0: I didn't feel very <laughs> confident. I needed to go into it with more gusto.
1: Okay, the second part. Saskatoon yeah. was good. It's Saskatchewan.
0: Saskatchewan. Okay. I know it now. Yeah, you on your much. second
1: try, that was quite good. <laughs> and it means something like fast-flowing river or something yeah. beautiful like that in um in canadian indian right because yeah. all of those a lot of the uh, canadian towns are indian names or first nation people because okay. they were there first so first nation <laughs> names for a lot of canadian towns that are a little bit difficult to pronounce
0: yeah they're beautiful yeah. though what did most people in um saskatoon do when you were growing up i don't imagine there were many aestheticians or cosmetic sellers
1: I don't even remember one. And actually, my mom was not, you know, to this day, she still probably doesn't use moisturizer because she doesn't think she needs it. Right.
0: <laughs> so
1: how did I end up? I thought, well, I'm trying to think Saskatoon would be, a, it's a farming town. Yeah. I mean, it is 300,000 people. So it's not, it's not small. Um, and nearby is one of the largest potash mines in the world. Wow. So Saskatoon potash, right, provides fertilizer for like all of Russia. Um, Yeah, yeah. No, it's a big, big, about six kilometers from where I was born in a little town called Outlook is the biggest potash mine in Canada. So that is a huge industry. And then you have the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon also. So it's also a big university city, which makes it actually kind of hip, freezing cold. Right, so like minus forty degrees Celsius with the wind chill, it can be minus sixty. That's five months out of the year. Yeah, still you walk around with you know short socks and sneakers because you kind of get used to it. You're just frozen all the time. Okay. <laughs> um, but it is you know uh it's definitely a B like a B city. There's nothing cool or uh right. you know. The culture is, is quite minimal. So when I was in high school, I became a bodybuilder just to kill time because libraries were really far away. You'd have to freeze your eyelids together waiting for a bus to get to one to go read anything. <laughs> You'd wait for the newspaper to come because that was kind of it. And, uh, you know, we had a, a television channel or two. I so had to I, do something. I had to do something.
0: And you decided yeah. to become a bodybuilder. You were, you were quite a good – didn't you win a championship or something? Am I?
1: couple of them. I know you, yeah, yeah, I know you can see that by my abs, you know, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I had a, a couple of bodybuilding titles when I was like 17, 18. Wow. It was something to do and it was, there was a community and it was a yeah. gym that my sister's boyfriend's brother owned. And so they, you know, taught me how to lift weights and it was just and a challenge. And you could do it indoors
0: as well. Yeah, it like was warm. It was cozy.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the, out, the outdoor sports in Canada or in Saskatchewan is just flat, right? Right. So yeah, I guess you could you could skate down the yeah. road, <laughs> yeah. but there was no skiing. No. Barely even any sledding, you know, there was barely a hill.
0: That's a shame. So you moved <laughs> over to um, the East Coast when you were still very young. You moved straight into New York without I much did. of a plan, which is quite romantic, isn't it? But I imagine it was also pretty daunting.
1: Well, I'd been there when I was 16. My sister yeah. lived there. Um, she was uh, working in New York. And so we went to visit her. Um, when I was, I, I guess, 15 or 16. And I loved it. Like the amount of, uh, I guess, just mental input, right? Walking down the street in New York in the 80s, it was quite a rough place, right? there, It was a, a real melange. And the energy of it, and of course, the energy of New York is always incredible. But it was before it was so gentrified, yeah. right? It was still quite dirty and rough. And of course, no cell phones. I mean, you're, were you born then? No. No, I was
0: born in 1990.
1: Yes, you can't even imagine. No cell phones. <clears throat> You'd have a home phone and then maybe an answering machine, maybe yeah. an answering machine. So when there was a nightclub, you had to know where. So there was, I remember this great nightclub called Payday. And name. yeah, they would only hold it on Payday, right? Which is oh, every, two, every two weeks okay. in america and so it was always a friday night but you had to know where it was because it would move
0: oh wow
1: so unless your friends liked you enough to keep trying to reach you (laughs) because you might not have even an answering machine you wouldn't know where it was so it was like everybody you know trying to find out where payday was on friday night and i mean it was just a really fun time where you i guess and I, i never know was it youth or actually, was it just because of the time, right?
0: I think the time does sound pretty good. I mean, I, when I picture that period in New York, I imagine kind of big power suits, you know, two tone shirts, massive mobile phones. Maybe, maybe that's even too early. But it was and kind too of early. Concord, and I don't know. I imagine this um, crazy kind of culture and a lot of money suddenly swilling around.
1: Well, I don't remember the money part because I didn't have any, but you would go, you know, you would go to the Palladium or whatever and everybody would be dancing and the Palladium was on 14th Street and it was like this huge building and you go in and they just turned the whole thing into a nightclub and there would be thousands of people in there and you would somehow find drinks even if you couldn't afford them. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was just kind of like a, a big party and then people worked, but it certainly wasn't as um sanitized I guess as it is right now so it was a really great time to to move there and and to live there and so I started I had to figure out what to do I moved back when I was 18 and I thought I was going to go to Columbia because I got accepted but I hadn't applied for student aid early enough because I didn't know that I had to for some reasons so I ended up not having student aid and not having tuition. So I had yes. to postpone my enrollment. And then I just never ended up going back because I started working. So I was a personal trainer because that's, you know, the skill I had at the time. I had muscle.
0: Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so so I went to this gym called Madison Avenue Muscle. And then there was another one around the corner from my sister's apartment called Better Bodies. And it was where wow. Jean-Claude Van Dam worked out there.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> I know.
1: Mm-hmm. So you go in and, you know, I was actually in pretty good shape. I look kind of like an Olympic athlete, you know, not, I wasn't yeah. like a big, that wasn't like Arnold. I was more like, you would, yeah, well, quite toned. Quite like toned. with the whole, you know, Tone. the short, yeah. The, um, so I would have people come up to me and ask if I would be their personal trainer. This was before there were personal trainers, but like, could you help me get my body to look kind of like yours, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started working as a personal trainer. I was like, well, I can make fifteen dollars an hour doing this.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that seems cheap as well. In,
1: it was well then. It was then. actually pretty good. Then it yeah, was okay. it was like not bad. So I ended up getting you know one client after another, and they were all because it was sort of this groovy gym where all the hipsters and the sort of film people worked out, and the, I ended yeah. up kind of getting into all of the the Hollywood people, the stylists, the filmmakers. So it was quite cool because I kind of dropped into the middle of, like, all the hipsters.
0: That's amazing. That's an absolute dream. That seems like what everyone imagines will happen when they move to New York or LA or something. And I you actually so. did it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Did you learn something from all those, um, all those influential people? Was there kind of anything you took away by osmosis, almost, or just observing them?
1: Yeah, that everybody is normal. I mean, okay. people have, have their special gifts, right? So someone might be visually incredibly talented or someone yeah. might be, um, you know, verbally very talented and an incredible writer, but most people also have tremendous weaknesses and worries and that we're all kind of the same. Yeah. And so I know with a lot of people will get quite overwhelmed by celebrities. Definitely. And you, I've just seen them all, you know, from, from doing that and, you know, Whipping people into shape, it would be everybody from like Carrie Fisher it used to be one of my clients. Oh
0: yeah, amazing. Yeah,
1: when she was married to Paul Simon, so Paul Simon, I used to do personal training with Paul Simon and Carrie Fisher. Really, I yeah. don't imagine Paul
0: Simon spent much time on his on his physique.
1: No, he. I mean, he just wanted to do the treadmill. I'm like, come on, we got
0: <laughs>
1: we got to branch us out. Like, I can't just stand here and watch you on the treadmill. Wow,
0: that's um, incredible.
1: Yeah, but and there were, and then they would, you know refer me to some stunt man who then I would end up with some supermodel and then you'd end up with so it was it was very interesting but and that of course parlayed itself into a whole bunch of celebrity clients when I learned how to do facials and then I had yeah. this spa so I ended up again with them coming over and okay I'll come and have a facial and then I'm going to send my friend for a facial and then ended up with all the you know yeah it was the who's who in there of uh but I got used to working with that celebrity clientele and they don't phase me yeah whereas I think a lot of people will think oh I couldn't possibly or I'm not one of them or you know you just realize we're all the same people yeah we're just that's... doing jobs
0: so that so that the facials business was let's face it and then after that it was it was called bliss yeah and and I think you know we spoke about the kind of disrupting element before and I think we'll speak about it again but it seems to me that the way beauty treatments were done back then, was quite cold and clinical. And maybe your the thing you brought to it was your kind of own personality and warmth. Is that fair to say?
1: I think that's a perfect summary.
0: There we go. Well, we can end it there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <Done. laughs> but, but what was, um, were you conscious of that? Was that a conscious thing? Or was it absolutely conscious?
1: The opposite, again, going back to I guess, the opposite of a good ideas is yeah. also a good idea or a great idea. So Every spot in New York or every facial place at that time was, you know, the harsh Eastern European judgmental whip mm-hmm. the stuff onto your face and shame you about yeah. how you looked and then oh, shove no. a whole bunch of it was not it was not pleasant. So you would go for a treatment thinking, oh, this is going to be so great. I'm going to look really good at the end. And then you would come out of there just feeling awful about yourself. And so I thought, okay, wait a second. There has got to be a better way to do this. Because I have bad skin from doing all that personal training, right? Mm. You sweat all day. And when you leave your house at 5 a.m., right, your first customer is at 7. And then your next one is at 9. You're just out in the middle of New York with, like, pollution on your face and sweat. And, you know, you get home at 10 o'clock at night, your skin has not been doing great things all day. So I had a challenging time with my skin. So I had a facial that kind of made me think, okay, if I ever had a facial place, I would never make people feel so bad about themselves
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) because they made me feel so bad about my face. And then I decided one summer just to go and learn how to do skincare because I, you know, why pay for someone else to do it when you're just going to feel terrible leaving? Yeah. And so I then started practicing on my friends and some of my very trusting personal training clients also let me. Practice on them, so I would I would run them up and down the stairs of their building, take them for a jog around Manhattan, do some calisthenics, a little bit of yoga, then pull out my facial steamer and all of my products and <laughs> <give Yeah>. them. <laughs> but it was quite funny because I used to carry probably 30 kilos of stuff around with me oh, on wow. the subway. Right.
0: So you wouldn't need to work out any more than that. That's
1: <laughs> no. It was very good for the core. Wow,
0: very 30 good. kilograms. What's in What's in your bag? Lots of just tinctures and potions oh,
1: yeah that but then you also needed towels you'd need like a, oh, yeah. a the steamer at that time was a heavy thing that you yeah. then had to it was like a big electric implement that you had to plug in and so you had all these you know and then of course all the workout stuff
0: yeah of course balls
1: wow. this that, that yeah so it was like a military operation bringing my yeah. stuff around New York and so I decided at some point after I had so many personal training clients who wanted me to do their facials regularly. I thought, well, you know what, actually, I didn't think of it as scaling at the time, right? Like people now talk about scaling, but I remember thinking, okay, I'm like 21 years old. This personal training thing is exhausting. I don't think I could do this and ever go back to school and actually get my degree because I did take part-time school at NYU and I used to fall asleep in my economics class because I was so tired because (laughs) I had to get up so early to train people to make my rent. And I would just be sitting there, you know, when you go like this, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that would happen to me like all through the class. Oh God. So I thought, okay, maybe doing facials, I could do facials. I can still support myself and I can go back to school and I won't fall asleep during class. So this was kind of the thought process at the time. And it's interesting because I look back and I look at, you know, my high school transcript and somebody should have looked at it and gone, you need to go to Harvard or you know, you need to be trying to get into. It. I randomly tried out for Columbia because mm. it was where my sister lived. I didn't know it was particularly great school. I didn't. No one was guiding me to. No. Hey, look, look at your grades. You should be trying to
0: go Ivy League. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> so I ended up as a personal trainer doing facials, and just like trying to figure it out. Uh, well, but yeah, it, it worked out. It worked out. It was as just
0: say, it worked out.
1: Yeah, it was funny, um, though, when you think, well, someone should have really maybe flagged to me (laughs) that I had some opportunity outside. I could have certainly scholarshiped, right, if anyone would have looked. Um, Anyway, so I opened like a little one-room sort of facial place in this little building where my clients, because it was only one room and people would have to change into their robe in that room and i would kind of like look out the window while they were changing <laughs> <laughs> behind a curtain any clients who were coming had to sit in the hallway on the floor I used to have people and you won't even know these people because you're you're like so young but did you ever hear of sonic youth
0: of course okay yeah. So yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: kim gordon was one of my yeah. clients yeah and i didn't know who she was so I remember one of my other clients, Babel Gilberto, who is a, she's like a Latin singer. She's the daughter of um, Jao Gilberto. Oh, cool. And she, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Look, her, her very first album was so good. You will play it over and over and over again. Anyway, she was leaving one day and Kim Gordon was coming in because she was on the hall, you know, sitting in outside in the hallway waiting for a facial. And then the next time Babel came in, she was like, was that Kim Gordon? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, do you know who she is? <laughs> <laughs> like... I had no idea who half of these people were wow. but it but it didn't matter right it's just a face it's just a person you realize they're all quite normal absolutely um, but so it was a really fun time and then that that was called let's face it And then I got a bigger, let's face it, because I was too busy in that little one room thing. So I hired a couple of people. And then when that got really busy, which took about three years, then I took a larger space and called it Bliss because we were going to offer also massages and all these different kinds of body treatments and really make it kind of an oasis for the urban person where they could come and forget about all their problems. And that was 1996.
0: 1996. Yeah. I mean, for anyone who wasn't... On the Manhattan scene in 1996, or and I wasn't
1: wish born? I was. yeah. it wasn't
0: born. Well, I was born, but I was a lot of my time was spent in North Oxford. I wasn't making it to Manhattan <laughs> so much, not to Payday Club. But uh, this wasn't just a, another facial business. This was like a fixture of society life. You were the aesthetician to everyone and anyone, and the, the waiting list was how long? We were. it was like 18 months or something. Yeah,
1: like 18 months.
0: Like 18 yeah. months. I mean, that is that's crazy.
1: You know, you know, you're doing a good job when your when your customers will book, you know, once a month for the Mm. next 18 months or two years. And then it would be funny because if they had to cancel for some reason, you know, kid school thing or work thing, they would call up and go, look, is there anyone I can swap with? Yeah, they would want to change it with somebody else the day after the day before. So we did a lot of kind of maneuvering around for people just so that they wouldn't lose their spot. Some people would book twice as many spots because they'd know just in case yeah
0: <laughs> wow but were you conscious of of the waiting list being a kind of prestige marketing tool or, I mean if you'd have just employed two maybe two or three more staff you could have cut that down or was it desirable to have a really long list
1: well you couldn't employ two because everybody needed a room
0: oh okay right, right? So you, you were at your capacity you really were
1: yeah we started out when we first launched with one room that was just for napping So people could have a massage and like go in this room and nap or the nap room was gone in six weeks because we had to turn it into another facial room. And then there was just no more room. So we were open like six days a week, 14 hours. But after that, you hire more people. There's just nowhere to put them.
0: Yeah, of course.
1: So prestige, we didn't think of it that way. Actually, it was like an albatross for us. We made sure and this is one thing. You know, nobody does things like this. But for me, it just felt like so necessary. I was so grateful that people would come to us Mm. and wait that long and were so interested in coming that the waiting list, and again, remember, no email at this time. We had... By 1996, a a computer booking system, right? So we put the, you could search a client and make a list of all their appointments and all that kind of stuff. But you couldn't, we didn't have like automatic emails that could go out, you know, cohort analysis or anything like that. So we would have actually a, a manual waiting list. And at the end of the day, it was someone's job on the front desk to call every single person on the waiting list, which sometimes was hundreds of people to apologize that we weren't able to get them in and let them know that we were still trying. Wow. And we did it every day.
0: So this this was, I mean, this these were in high demand. You had some seriously high profile clients as well, who you may not be able to talk about. But were there any kind of revealing or surprising moments with um, with celebrities or power players?
1: I won't name names. Okay. I will say there was like, we had an issue where um, one of our clients thought their child was going to be kidnapped and we were...
0: Oh my word.
1: Yeah, we were actually dealing with that. We had a lot of PR. Now I had clients also who were heavy hitting PR people. And so when I'd have a celebrity in there who was dealing with a PR issue, I would hook them up with my... Heavy wow. eating Who would sort out their PR problems?
0: Oh my God! So you were a connector as well. You were you were an agent almost for these <laughs> people?
1: I think we just were a problem solving place. Maybe yeah. of more kinds than than we necessarily thought. Um, Absolutely. So I mean, there was uh, sure there was certainly one thing after another because along with that celebrity clientele comes like a level of kind of um, oddness, right? Yeah. Like they're sort of, some of them are so low key, not demanding. They just Mm. slide in like anybody else. I mean, when Oprah came in, I didn't even know it was Oprah. I mean, I knew she was coming, went into the back lounge to pick her up. She had no makeup on and looks quite different without, you know, all of her makeup on. And I didn't know that it was her. So I had to go to the front desk and go, yo, it's. Yeah, because I didn't, want to, I didn't oh, want to go, hey, is Oprah here yet? Because, you know, you'd have a storm of people <laughs> running into the back. And the front desk had to say, yeah, you know, yes, she's here. And I said, yeah. you know, what does she look like? <laughs> <laughs> and someone had to come back just to make sure, because I didn't want to just walk up to someone and go, Oprah, you know. Yeah, when you yeah. weren't sure it was Oprah, that would be embarrassing. <laughs> um, so, the lo- I mean, there's a million stories. We could be of here forever. Yeah, of it was a fun time. I Mo- yeah, might get
0: you- some lawsuits as well.
1: But Which no, happened. I have nothing bad to say about anybody. <laughs> no, of course, of course. Yeah, and and most of them, it's quite well known that they had come in because, of course, besides having that celebrity in there, you would have some editor for some magazine is always in there. So of course, they would see in the waiting room, oh my God, look, Courtney Love, or you know, it was um, right. there was always somebody in there.
0: So you sold it in, I think, two thousand and four. Is that right?
1: Well, I sold a percentage of it in 1999 to, LVM, to LVMH. And um, so it was a, a majority actually sold 70% of it to LVMH in 1999.
0: And you were still young at that point?
1: 29.
0: 29, not even 30. No. I mean, was it, yeah, most people kind of get one idea and, and try and ride it out for the rest of their career if it's working. Yeah. Was that a difficult decision to decide to, to sell up? Were you anxious beforehand or, or did you regret it afterwards? No. No, <laughs> no
1: because I, I have been so broke for so long. And and the problem with this waiting list was that you never had enough capacity. So you always had to keep yeah. building more rooms or we expanded. Uh, so we expanded to a second floor and built 12 more rooms. And then that wasn't enough. We had to open up town and just constantly reinvesting. You never yeah. have a dollar in the bank, right? Yeah. So you've got your entire net worth is based on this one location where if something happens... Right. The, yeah. the, so just the idea of having a bit of money in the bank, like that safety net, was a very compelling idea for me. And knowing that I didn't think LVMH and anybody in France was going to want to come in and try and like run my spa. So for me, day to day, exactly the same.
0: So you were 29 and, and all that money hit your bank account. Yeah. What did you do when it did? We had um, Simon Woodruff on here last year who founded Yo Sushi and he sold that out. And he got quite a nice payout. And he said he just walked to a cash point and just stared at his bank balance for about five minutes. And people were gathering in the queue behind him. And he was just looking at the number because he couldn't quite believe it. Well, <laughs> what did hope,
1: you do? I hope he took it out of HSBC and put it in some interest-bearing accounts.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm sure he did. He's savvy enough. But what did you do that day? What did you do on that first morning or afternoon after it? You know, this is the dream for many entrepreneurs, that that moment.
1: Yeah, no, you know, I think nothing that different. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I think yeah. it was just nice to know, oh, it's there. But it's numbers, right? It's just like numbers in your bank account. As long as yeah. you're covering your rent and you're able to go out for Thai food once a week, you're kind of fine. Of course, yeah. over time, you start to adjust your lifestyle a little bit. So we did buy a great apartment in Brooklyn, you know, in, in wow. like the, the hot building that was sort of up and coming. It was still quite edgy. And let's just say it would be like entrepreneurial. Yeah, right? yeah. So we got like a, a beautiful apartment in sort of an up-and-coming neighborhood, which is now called Dumbo, which is now sort of the hot neighborhood. You know, down down under Manhattan Bridge overpass. We were the pioneers down there, and wow. we moved our office down there because the rent was so cheap. But there wasn't even—I mean, there was one Korean deli, right? Yeah, there was nothing. It took about seven years before a Starbucks moved in.
0: <laughs> and now they've got a <laughs> Soho house. You kicked off the the Dumbo Brooklyn revolution. Exactly.
1: Yeah, well, it was uh, the wild back then. It was yeah. the wild.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so after that, you moved to London, and in in quite quick succession, you started two businesses: Soap and Glory, which is obviously a kind of I don't know mass market.
1: Yeah, Mastige. I call it Mastige. Yeah, Bath and Body Mastige. Um, mastige bad. is in
0: mass market and prestige. Yeah. Nice. Okay. I've never heard that, but was that your own coinage?
1: I don't think I made that one up, but I did make up Maspirational.
0: Maspirational. Yeah. <laughs> That's good as well. That's Thank really you. Good in fact, everything should be maspirational. It should. Market, it make should. It feel, yeah.
1: Otherwise, it's just landfill.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah.
0: And then after that was uh, Flip Flop, of course, yeah. which you're still part of. So oh, yeah. this is, yeah. I mean, this is the thing. You've you've had an incredible success with a facial business. You've been a PT. You've then got into soaps and then you're into making shoes. Shoes. Yeah. It, I mean, I guess the question is, do you just have lots and lots of curiosities? What, what kind of keeps you jumping around? And, and why do you, um, I don't know, what fuels you?
1: Personal evolution, of course, right? I don't want to yeah. be bored. I remember someone, or maybe I just thought about, like, why would I never want to be really, really poor? Because right? yeah. when I lived in New York, I had, like, not much. I would be able to make my rent. Yeah. And then maybe I ate a lot of carbohydrates because they're so cheap. Right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> and so it was really about that $15, right? An hour when your rent is $800, yeah. right? Then you do, and you're not working every single hour as a personal trainer. You're kind of like maybe you have six clients a day if you're lucky, then you got to figure out, okay, how much of your money is going just to rent? Yeah. Quite a lot. Um, and I just remember, oh, if it continues like this, it's quite boring.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> because you can't afford to go anywhere that you can see anything you can't necessarily, you know, they're just, yes, you can go to museums, but how many museums can you go to? Mm. And so I think for me, always, I just wanted information right to fill this, like a a void. And I just like to always try and fill it with information, some information I don't process as well, but a lot of it I do. So for me, just reading all the time and, um, And trying to, you know, find out about things. I'll follow the most random thing and then like click through to read something about something that I don't necessarily know anything about. But eventually it creates like a new picture of uh, a view. And I don't know if you've ever read Adam Grant. Have you read his book? Yes.
0: Uh, Originals, I think I read. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So he talks about in originals being um, a specialist at something. Yeah. But then being a generalist. Yeah. And that entrepreneurs are really specialists in their area of expertise and then generalists because they put together ideas in very new ways because they draw from so many different things. And so I've been a personal trainer and a bodybuilder, right? The footwear, my footwear, which is Fit Flop, was all about developing ergonomics into a shoe that would change the way that your body aligned and moved. So it's actually not that far away from my area of expertise. It's just applying it in a new place.
0: Yeah, I mean, you've, you've anticipated my question about the debate between specialists and generalists. Depending on who I listen to, one is either better than the other, but I suppose what you've done is is both at once, which is genius.
1: Listen, we need specialists, yeah, right? And then we need generalists. <laughs> yeah, we need people who really know their craft. Yeah. And then we need people who can manage a whole bunch of people who are doing their crafts very, very well. Yeah. But entrepreneurs are generally people who have a really... Um, extensive amount of uh, understanding in a particular area, but a lot of curiosity in others because they will connect the dots in new ways. So Mm -hmm. I guess because I had that personal training experience, right? And I've got this beauty industry experience. And as I learn more and more about something else through maybe something else that I do, I may end up being a bit of a specialist, but you need that specialist architecture before you. I think that you can do anything well entrepreneurially because you have to be able to execute it at a very at a world-class level and if you don't know what that is then you're not going to um, be competitive enough to be successful
0: what kind of person do you like to hire at beauty pie who's is there a kind of beauty pie paradigm of a person
1: um open-minded yeah um no bullshit Okay. Like we just really are quite practical about, okay, what is our goal here, right? Our mission is to get these incredible products, which we know how to develop. So that part's not difficult as such, but for incredible prices, it's all about supply chain. It's about delivery. It's about making it easier for the customer. So we're all quite obsessed with our customers and making it better. And we have to be quite practical about it and just get it done. There is no time for, you know ego like it's not about us it's about
0: them okay have you got quite a good bullshit detector
1: i think so
0: i think so as well
1: i just don't have time for it
0: no no No. (laughs) well that's the thing there's a lot of um in all of our jobs now there seems to be more and more fluff around the outside and extra stuff you have to do just to kind of position yourself and And almost like it's more work showing that you're doing the work than actually doing the work. Do you know what I mean? Showing face and stuff like that. Yeah. I suspect to Beauty Pie there's less of that, which is good.
1: You know, in the end, I think that the real value comes from delivering value to your customer. Mm. So you can spend a lot of time with the fluff and the whatever, but it's actually not building anything. And you can very quietly build something that's very valuable for both, you know, yourself as a business and then also really for the customer and those two things are really very aligned and I know um, a lot of businesses now well it's all about shareholder value right
0: yeah but actually
1: customer value is shareholder value right If, if you are driving value for your customers they are going to be loyal to you because they can't get something better elsewhere you want to thrill delight and and really bring them something that is going to Improve their lives, and if Absolutely. you're doing that over and over and over again, you will end up building a valuable business. The two aren't like, you know, they're not on polar, opposite paths. They're actually yeah. really highly parallel, and um, um, in, I guess where they where they get you.
0: That's the kind of Amazon at its heart, is Amazon's thing, isn't it? Deliver huge customer value in it and everything else kind of falls into place. Yeah. Not to compare you to Amazon because there's some elements maybe that you're slightly more conscientious. But I'm interested actually, kind of on that note, in what the wider industry thinks about Beauty Pie because you've come along and shown that it doesn't have to be this way. Are they angry at you?
1: Don't know, they're not talking to me, Joe. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no. But you must get a sense. I mean,
1: a lot of them about, have joined, yeah. let's just say. A lot of, we see a lot of people who are actually members.
0: <laughs> okay, wow. Even, wow.
1: You know, even the 30% discount that you would get if you are employed by, you know, company X or Y is nothing yeah. compared to the 70 or 80% discount you get if you're buying stuff direct from Beauty Pie. So we have a lot of people who may work for company X, Y, or Z, but they, they get actually, their
0: products from the pie. Well, that's the best endorsement at all. I think
1: I think yeah. so, yeah. And, you know, there's room for everybody. I mean, certainly we're something new, but something new always comes along. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of people who won't just never want a membership to anything, right? Yeah. And so we will never get those people because we're right. a membership club. So those people will probably still go and pay retail. And they, if they feel great paying, some people really want to pay a lot for their... Yeah. Products because it makes them feel better about themselves because they feel exclusive, and that's an ego gratification thing. And there are those people, and you know, God bless them, yeah. it's just not who we're appealing to, yeah,
0: yeah. So, so, I mean, we should probably explain exactly how it works. So, people pay a monthly subscription or a yearly subscription, or a yearly subscription, yeah. yeah, um, and
1: shop at crazy low prices,
0: yeah, they get access to the same, or if not the same, almost identical cosmetics but hugely hugely
1: i'm gonna say in a lot of cases better cosmetics better better. yeah Yeah, especially because we don't value we don't value engineer we actually build with with the makeup right very often those products are made by the labs and they work on them for four or five years to get a makeup formula perfect so all you what you do is you go in and you choose the colors Um, We use makeup artists to help us curate colors and things like that. So um, we actually just did a a really great collab with Mary Greenwell um, and Patty Dubrov. So we've got these LA, you know, and celebrity makeup artists who are really masters of their crafts helping us with skincare i'm kind of the master of the craft because i've been doing it for so long so i really know how to formulate skincare and what the ingredients are and then we go to the best chemists in the labs and we actually build from the bottom up rather from from a price point backwards okay so our skincare is like second to none
0: yeah yeah just
1: just a lot less expensive so yeah members come in you choose a membership you can either go monthly you go annually we also have candles fragrance vitamins um, like so many other care, hair care, body care. Um, and, and then you go in and depending on your um, depending on your membership level, there's a certain amount you can buy each month. Mm. We started out that way because we had to make sure that one person wouldn't come in and like buy everything and that we have nothing left for the other members. Right. But we're, we're now getting to uh, the place where we're almost reaching that critical mass where we will be able to offer unlimited shopping. So you can just buy whatever you want and we'll put a tiny little bit of membership fee into each product so that it's kind of the same as if you were having a higher tier membership and we'll just build it in and then people will be able to, and I think it'll be even better because sometimes you just want to buy everything, you know?
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, I certainly do now. And
1: I certainly don't like limits myself. So why should my customer have a limit? (laughs) I mean, it was necessarily, it was necessary at the beginning, but now I think we're almost getting to the point where we'll be able to let her kind of. Go wild.
0: So you've you've had kind of four big hits, maybe more. Four seems about right. Nice.
1: Fit Flop, Self and Glory. Beauty Pie.
0: Yeah, yeah, Beauty Pie, yeah. Pretty
1: and I have yeah, a couple of little smaller ones, but they don't Smaller really... hits. <laughs> yeah, smaller <laughs> well, hits.
0: Most people are lucky if they get one small to medium-sized hit in their lifetime, and they might milk that cow forever. But I wonder if... Um, if you've ever had any duds, have you ever started anything that just flopped or failed?
1: Yeah, small things.
0: But nothing, nothing grand. You don't have any kind of huge, there weren't any kind of dark nights of the soul when you really thought, oh, God, I've messed up here.
1: Not that I remember. Maybe that's just, um... <laughs> I mean, cer- certainly there's stuff that we've launched that just, you know, it might come in and you're like, oh, my God, this isn't what we spec And so let's just, we got to get, we got to like clear it and not sell it to customers. Um, there was a, a men's range for Soap & Glory that didn't do very well because yeah. Boots asked us, oh, will you do a men's range? So we did a men's range. It turned out men at the time, right, didn't want to spend more than sort of 99p on their, sh- you know, the Boots customer at that time did not want to buy a $3 shower gel. He wanted, or three-pound shower gel. He wanted sort of a 99p one. So, that didn't do as well as the women's products, which were like the you know it was the brand that ate the UK. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but you know that's just kind of a learning. I, I think you look at it all as experiments, and you just want to experiment and learn quickly, and and then try and do that retro right. So Ray Dalio, have you read him?
0: Uh, no, but I've seen him talk and things. Yeah, such Amazing. a
1: genius. Yeah, and he just talks about how you you know you identify the problem and just like spend time really identifying what, what was the problem or why didn't it work? Right. And then you accept it. Okay. This was not personal or maybe it's just something I didn't know at the time, but now I know it. Yeah. Right? You try and internalize it so you don't do it again.
0: Absolutely. And then,
1: and then you go and you improve and then that's it. Right. But it's first identifying, accepting. you got to be open enough to say, actually, yeah, that was a mistake. Yeah. What the hell were we doing? We didn't have this information. Therefore we made the wrong decisions and then let's not do that next time. And how do you improve next time? So, Yeah.
0: That's easier with the no bullshit, no ego ethos, I imagine.
1: Yeah, and you know, defensiveness.
0: And also, yeah, people pinning the blame on other people or just trying to wriggle off the hook, which is natural, but not necessarily helpful.
1: I think I've read somewhere and I would wholeheartedly agree that the only way to improve is to make every single thing your fault.
0: Okay, nice. Right?
1: Yeah, so if, if it's how you approach it, how you've dealt with it, if you don't realize that actually you could have done something about it or, or how, done something differently in how you approached it, you might have been able to improve it, then yeah. you're always at the hands of other people and you're just the ball being batted around. And yeah. nobody wants to be that, right?
0: So you mentioned it very briefly then, um, and it's clearly on my mind that the, the world of male grooming and male beauty, <laughs> because obviously at Gentleman's Journal, we do quite a lot of grooming stuff but we are you know probably in a minority I don't think most people come to us for grooming it's a it's a small part of what we do but I've been hearing for the last five seven years that there is about to be an explosion in men's cosmetics it's been more like an upwards slope but how uh, what where's the the opportunity if you were going to guess what the next big kind of moment for men's grooming is what do you think
1: you know Joe I think like men probably won't me. tell
0: us. <laughs>
1: well, well, no, 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 it's not that. I just think it's the same as men's shoes, right? So women will buy eight pairs of shoes a year yeah. and men will buy sneakers and maybe one pair of shoes. Yeah. And so... Will there be this big? I think men are like starting to be quite well groomed already, and this explosion that's about to happen—I can tell you—it's been about to happen for twenty years.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's been my sense too.
1: Yeah, and I just don't know if men—you know—men are, and this is a societal thing—is it going to change? I mean, you got to like really go in and and change, um, you know, anthropologically how people are are functioning. But women always want to be not you know not all women but you know there's women always feel like part of their value is in how they are um perceived visually mm. and men a little less so yeah. in ge- i mean i'm making broad generalizations of, of course, course. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um but that sort of worth in how you look right men sort of are considered to be more handsome as they age women are yeah. rarely considered to be more beautiful as they age. Um, And so it has just become a big part of the culture to kind of try and keep yourself looking youthful because, you know, youth is sort of power.
0: I think I have
1: seen a lot of um, men in their fifties and sixties starting to have plastic surgery, starting to try and look a little bit fresher to not necessarily for women, but more to be more competitive in the workplace because it's a young man's world at the moment with tech and so you don't want to look necessarily like a, a dinosaur. You want to look like you're kind of in a in game. Yeah. Um, so maybe it's about men having Botox, men having little like fillers, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, because it helps them feel a little more um, current. Yeah, yeah. If they're surrounded by a bunch of programmers and, you yeah. know, data. <laughs> yeah scientists and whatever most of those guys are quite youthful
0: there was a piece in um i think it was the cover story of the sunday times magazine last weekend they had a new phrase for it which escapes me now but it was essentially that male cosmetic surgery being being, oh
1: really oh look i'm so i'm There you go. you're
0: absolutely right what percentage (laughs) of your of your beauty pie subscribers are men
1: last i checked it was four but i'm going to say it's probably about three now because we you know when you start to grow and um, grow faster and scale yeah. is probably it was probably you know those early adopter kind of men yeah. at at the beginning and there may be less of them as as we scale it's,
0: yeah yeah that makes sense well i hope more men sign up basically. me
1: too we were actually discussing this morning if we do razors because we have this german you know uh german engineered razor factory yeah. that we can buy direct from and uh, i thought oh wow well, you know what if we do razors for women we should, I mean, I'm not saying everybody is in a in a couple that is a female-male couple, mm. but there will probably be the majority of people living that way if they are in a couple. We know that statistically. And yeah. um, wouldn't it be easy for her to be able to order her partner's razors when she orders her own razors so should we i mean we don't normally think of it because most beauty pie products can be used on men and women but there are a few of them are pink but there are a lot of them that are black and white yeah so we try to be mindful like hey wait guys are probably using these two so let's make sure that they don't look ridiculous on a guy's counter
0: yeah okay yeah
1: and then we started to think about razors and thought oh you know what it's just so handy because you know she he's using her shampoo and her shower gel and her, probably some of her moisturizer. So. If she can pick up his razors, wouldn't, wouldn't that be great? So we may end up just seeing that, oh, it's so easy to order your razors. Yeah. That we might end up with more men coming to us just simply because of that. Of course. Yeah. And
0: Harry's, Harry's have done incredibly well. And yeah. Yeah. Something that seems so simple, just subscription, regular razor stuff, and just yeah. well-made, pretty simple it must have been hard during the pandemic. Nobody shaved. Nobody shaved. No. Anyway, beards are in now. I don't know if you can see mine.
1: Yes, it's very, very <laughs> handsome. <laughs> that,
0: that, thank you. That's more to um to hide uh, a growing double chin. I'm afraid. <laughs> Maybe I'll need some of your. Is
1: peaches. it the is it the pandemic? <laughs> the pandemic
0: double chin? Oh, it's just genetic. I'm I'm furious at my parents. They've given me everything in life, but a strong jawline they didn't give me. But I love them very much. They don't listen to this. Who am I kidding? I'm sure <laughs> yeah. they, they do. Might.
1: they might. Yeah, you got to be careful. The
0: technological barrier. The idea of podcast to them is like Radio Four. If it's not that, I'm yeah. not too interested. Well, but it's anyway,
1: so easy to flip on Radio Four. Right? A it podcast is. actually requires the subscription. Yeah. The whole yeah. Um, exactly. Well, you should like consult the Times Magazine. I'm sure there's something that they can do yeah. about that. <laughs>
0: I'd rather not start playing around because I don't don't think I'd stop. But amazing. Um I wish I could have you for longer because we've got so many more questions. But um I'll leave you with one last question. You've had these obviously these these incredible series of hits, and I don't suspect the beauty pie will be your last. Are you working on something else? What's in the Marcia Kilgore lab?
1: If I if I told you, Joe, I would have to kill you.
0: I thought you might say that. Sorry. Okay. You know Can what? You give us a I'll hint, come back. Of
1: when it comes it will be hilarious you're gonna love it
0: is it completely different
1: yes wow. and it's so genius wow. and it's just like out of left field but everyone needs one and it's
0: so it's a product
1: it's a product, <laughs> it's, a product. it's a product yes it's a product
0: okay everyone needs one wow.
1: yeah um because there is a better way to do something that we all do every day and we're gonna do it in a new way I'll tell you when the time comes. Okay, we'll, I can't wait. We'll be wait. calling you up going, hey, can we get on the podcast?
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you're welcome back anytime. It's been so, so lovely to speak to you and meet you. Nice I hope we can um, meet in person.
1: I'm going to send you a box of pie, okay?
0: Oh, really? Okay, yeah. that's very, very kind. I'd you love have that.
1: normal skin type?
0: I don't even know. I think normal, yeah. But I'm sure it's normal.
1: It looks normal. Look yeah you look quite normal and maybe like a little something since you're worried about your wrinkles or whatever it was you started (laughs) we'll get you a little like gentle retinol in there just for prevention a lovely
0: bit of retinol marcia thank you so much it's a pleasure bye bye see you soon bye Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.